know, for the almost 19 years that my wife, Sydney, and I have been married, uh, for almost the entirety of those 19 years, we have driven really old cars with lots of miles. Um, you know, part of that's just a decision. Part of that has been out of necessity because we can't afford new cars. And so we've always had just like really old, like beater cars. In fact, if you would see my wife's van right now, one of the doors literally has duct tape over the handle because the door fell off this fall and we can't use it anymore. And so it's just, it's kind of the way we roll. And so we've always had um, old cars with high miles. And if you've ever owned an old car with high miles, you know, like one of the most important relationships in your life is a mechanic. Like you have to have a really, really good, really trustworthy mechanic. So I remember when Sydney and I first got married, uh, we had old cars, but we did not have much money. And so a friend recommended this mechanic. And the only recommendation he said, he said, this guy's really cheap, which was great because we were really poor. And so he was cheap. We were poor. It was like a perfect fit. We knew nothing else about him. And so I remember uh, my Jeep had broken down and I saved up a little bit of money and bought this old kind of just like commuter a beat up car that I drive around town for 1100 bucks. And about a month into having this car, I'm, I'm driving down the interstate and the check engine light comes on. And I'm not sure if you've ever been driving and you had the check engine light come on, but it's very different than the gas light, you know, because the, the gas light comes on and unless you were just like so mechanically inept, like when the gas light comes on, you know what's wrong with the car and you know what you have to put in it. When the gas light comes in, what do you have to put in it? Somebody help me out. Yeah, yeah. I wish somebody would have gotten that wrong. That would have been awesome. It's like carburetor. It's like, no, it's gas. Um, when, when the gas light comes on, you know exactly what's wrong. You know what, have to go, you know what has uh, to go in it if, if you're going to fix or keep the car running, right? Um, the check engine light is totally different. Like the check engine light comes on and it lets you know something's wrong, but it doesn't tell you what's wrong in the car. It's just like this like ambiguous moment of worry, just like springs on 30 seconds before it comes on. You're like, this car will last me forever. And then that light comes on and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know if this is like an oxygen sensor or if the thing's gonna blow up in three seconds. You know, it's like, it's somewhere in between. It's just all of a sudden, it's this am, uh, ambiguous level of uncertainty and worry that just comes in like, oh man, what's going on in my car? So I'm driving down the road in this car that I just bought, the check engine light comes on. I call my guy who will not be named. Um, he's no longer my guy. Like my wife and I, we've changed mechanics. Like some of you change churches. You know, we bounce. Did that hurt? Did that sting a little bit? <laughs> Love you, glad you're here. Um, he's no longer a mechanic, but I call him and I'm like, hey, check engine lights on. He's like, bring it in. So I take it in. He'll, he keeps it for a few days. He calls me and he says, hey, come pick up your car. I got the light turned off. I'm like, awesome. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did you fix it or did you just turn the light off? And he's like, well, you know, I changed the oil. I'm like, dude, I could change the oil. He's like, I couldn't really figure out what was going on with it. So I got the light off so you can pass emissions. I'm like, no, I want you to fix it. So he kept it a few more days and he calls me back and he's like, okay, I think I fixed it. Here's what I did. Here's what's going on. Go pick up my car and I'm driving. I kid you not, I'm 15 minutes into the drive and guess what pops on? Check engine light. I'm like, ah. And so I call him back. I'm like, hey, the light's back on and I'll never forget this. He said, hey, you can bring it back in. He goes, but here's what I'd recommend doing. He said, just get a little piece of electrical tape and put it over the light. And he goes, that way when you drive, you don't have to see it or worry about it anymore. And I was, I'm like, okay, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm getting a new mechanic, like new, new guy. I got to find a guy that'll fix it. And I was, I was thinking about that moment this week. You know, it's so easy to see like in the physical, but it's really easy to overlook in the spiritual. 
you know, most, most of my life without even meaning to. Um, I've been trained when the check engine light of my heart begins to flicker. I've been trained to cover it, to avoid it, to hide it, to, to pretend that it's not there. I'll do anything to get the light to go off um, if I can just keep moving. And I think about all the ways that we do this in life. You know, sometimes the light in our soul comes on. You don't even know what's wrong. You just know. You're like, man, something's off. I'm irritable, angry, I'm sad. I feel, you know, purposeless. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, that, that light goes on. And you don't know what's going on. So sometimes, you know, when that check engine light comes on, we're like, let's just get the light to turn off. And we try to, we try to um, numb ourselves, distract ourselves, entertain ourselves. Saw this with one of my kids a few weeks ago. You know, we'd watched a movie and any parents in the room, you understand this. Sometimes you watch a movie with your kids and you forget about a part that was in the movie because you didn't watch it with kids the last time you watched it. And so we're watching this movie and there was this part that was kind of scary. I'd forgotten all about it. And my youngest son, who was eight at the time, he's like, He's like, oh man, that, that freaked me out. So when the movie was over, he said, hey, can we watch something funny on YouTube to just like kind of get my heart to not think about that scary moment for a minute? And I'm not saying that judgmentally. I just went, that's the human instinct. Oh, something's going on inside of me that I don't like. How can I just distract, numb, veg out, misdirect? Sometimes it's, hey, how do I cover it up? And so what do we do when something's broken inside of us? We, we, we go harder at work. Like, I'm gonna crush it at work. We get controlling in our relationships. We, we begin to, to try to manage our way through all sorts of things. And, and th this is what I love about the month of February, if you're new in our church family, is, is the month of February for us is an intentional moment every year where we say, hey, no matter what's going on, maybe you're cruising down the street and everything feels fine in life, or maybe you're cruising and the check engine light has just come on. Whatever it is, the month of February is a time where we say, hey, let's bring our hearts into the Father's house and give him the space to put his hands on us and to really diagnose what's going on in the spaces that we can't see, trusting that when he puts his hands on us, it will always be for our good and his glory. And so there's something about this season of prayer and fasting where we're just going, hey God, I want you to help me understand what's happening beneath the surface and I want you to get my life back in line with you. And this is, this is what I love about John 15. It's why we're taking five Sundays in a row in it. It's why we're memorizing it. It's why we're praying and fasting through it. It's because there is some ancient wisdom that Jesus is gonna drop in the lives of his disciples at a really unusual time that I believe is designed to help them understand how it is that the Father goes about bringing your life into alignment, whether your life is working or not. Like, this is the way that he goes about, and, and if you don't understand the way that the Father goes about this, you'll be tempted to run from it, to resist him, to, to work against the very thing he's trying to do in your life. And so uh, this morning, I just wanna give us the overview and we're gonna try to dig into each piece of it over the coming weeks. But in order to understand John 15, you have to understand the context behind John 15. Context brings clarity. Clarity brings confidence. It's like when you understand what's happening, it helps you see what Jesus is saying more clearly. And when you see what Jesus is saying more clearly, it gives you confidence to actually yield, to, to go all in on what God is doing. So here's the context of John 15. You know, Jesus is about 33 years old at this point. He's towards the end of his earthly ministry. He had handpicked these disciples three years earlier and they had had a front row seat to the beauty of humanity and divinity living perfectly in harmony together in the life of Jesus. So they had seen like life as it was intended to be 
on full display, absolutely perfectly, everything as it should be. They saw Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, calm the storms. They saw him troll the Pharisees. They saw him deal with the hurting and the broken. They saw all of it. They heard the jokes around campfires. They saw his sleeping habits, his eating habits, his Sabbath habits. They saw everything about life as it was intended to be on display in the life of Jesus for three years. And they come to this moment in John chapter 13, And if you've read through the Gospel of John, or if you've read through the Gospels, or if you look in your Bibles, there's a little heading there in some of your Bibles that say the Last Supper. And so we see this, and all of a sudden, we have some expectation about what's getting ready to happen. But here's what I want you to understand this morning, is the disciples, even though you and I know it was the Last Supper because we read the story, and we see the heading in our Bibles, the disciples had no idea this was the Last Supper, They just thought this was the Passover meal. They thought this was the moment and they're gonna get a kick it with Jesus again. It's gonna be a great night, great party. They just thought it was another Christmas Eve meal, another Thanksgiving meal. Like they just thought, hey, this is the time. And because they had no insight about what's coming, they had no insight about the moment they were in. They had no foresight about what was coming. So they had no insight as to the moment they were in. And our lives are filled with these last supper moments, but the truth is you almost never know you're in a last supper moment until it's in the rearview mirror. You didn't know that was the last time you'd hang with that friend before the car accident. You didn't know that that was gonna be the last time your college buddies all got together before so-and-so was transferred to Germany. And it's like, oh, we're not all gonna get to be together again. There's a moment when you were a kid, I guarantee you, where you went outside to play in the neighborhood with your friends for the last time, and chances are none of you knew it. None of you knew. This is the last time we're going for a bike ride in the neighborhood. It's just like your life is filled with last supper moments. And because you don't have the foresight to know it's the last supper, you very rarely have the insight to take in everything that is happening right then and right there. But Jesus knew exactly what was happening. At the beginning of John 13, we're told that he knew the hour had come, he knew where he's at, he knew where he had come from and where he's going, so he had courage to do what nobody else would do. And it's there in the middle of this Last Supper that he picks up the wine glass and takes the metaphorical fork and clang, 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 you know, gets their attention and he says, boys, I've got some, some news that's gonna be tough for you to take in. And he begins to unload some really heavy things onto his disciples. He says, one of you is gonna betray me. All of you are gonna deny me. Peter tries to argue. Jesus is like, you're gonna do it three times tonight. He then says, I'm gonna go away for a season. He uses this beautiful divine proposal language that we spent all fall talking about in John 14. He goes, I'm gonna go prepare a place at the Father's house. You can't come with me right now. He says, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the one that's been in me. He's gonna live in you forever. He's not gonna abandon you. He says, and then I'm gonna come back for you. And so all of this stuff is happening in John chapter 13 and 14. And here's what I want you to just try to get in your minds as we get ready to read John 15 together for the next month. Is that the disciples were receiving the brilliance of Jesus, not in a TED Talk, not through a podcast, not in an auditorium where they're hearing a lecture, but they were receiving the brilliance of Jesus and the complicated reality of grief and fear and confusion and disorientation. And I would argue none of them knew what to do with it. And it's really hard for us to read John 15 in these very uncomfortable brown plastic chairs and and to feel it, to understand it the way that the disciples would have. Jesus drops this stuff on them. And have you ever noticed the way that grief and fear 
severely inhibit your ability to take in information. Have you noticed this? Like when you're sad and you're scared and somebody's trying to tell you something important, your heart can barely grab it, right? I remember a couple of years ago, we had gone on a trip as a family and my oldest son, it's the first time we'd ever gone skiing as a family and my oldest son had a serious accident, had to have an emergency surgery. And I remember I'm sitting there in the parking lot of the hospital in Boise, Idaho. My wife is in the hospital. This is during COVID. She's in there with our son. They wouldn't let me in because of COVID. Another sermon for another day. But I'm out in the parking lot with my other two sons who are sound asleep in the back of the car. And Sydney calls me and she says, hey, he's gonna have to have surgery. And she starts telling me everything that's going on. And I have so much grief and so much fear. And she's giving me all of this information and I couldn't absorb any of it. And I get off the phone with her and all of a sudden, I'm like, I need to call my parents. And I'm like, wait, I don't know what to tell them because I don't know what she just said to me. So I call her back. I'm like, babe, I'm sorry. I need you to run that back by me one more time. Because grief and fear inhibit our ability to hear and to receive. So Jesus, he'd been with these guys three years. This is the context. He shares this really heavy stuff. And look at the end of John chapter 14, verse 31. It'll be up on the screen. I just want you to look at the last part of this verse. They've been at the Last Supper and Jesus says, come now, or some of your Bibles say, arise. He says, come now, let us leave. In other words, Jesus says, hey, let's get up from the Last Supper. Let's get up from this meal and let's go for a walk together. Once again, the disciples had no foresight to where this walk was going, so they had no insight into what was about to happen, even though he had tried to tell them. And so they leave the upper room They walk through the west side of the old city of Jerusalem. You can still walk through those streets today down the cobblestone paths and the city. There's there's no electricity during the day, during those days, but it was a full moon because it was Passover. And so the streets are lit up by the moon. They would have come around the edge of the Temple Mount. And they begin to walk down into the Kidron Valley, which is a really significant valley in the scriptures filled with so much prophetic implication We don't have enough time to deal with any of that today, but they walk down into this valley and in the middle of this valley is a creek that they would eventually cross over before ascending up the hill on the other side where the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane and all of that was. It's the place where Jesus would pray so intensely that he would sweat blood. It's the place where he'd be arrested. It's the place where his disciples would flee. It was the beginning of the end of life as the disciples knew it, but they they had no clue. And they're walking in this grief through the streets of Jerusalem down this this path under the full moonlight into the Kidron Valley. And do you know what was right in the middle of that valley? Huge vineyards. (laughs) Huge vineyards. And Jesus, I believe, knew that his disciples were so turned upside down. He knew the check engine light was going. (laughs) And at some point in that walk through the valley, he said, hey, let's stop for a moment, guys. He said, I want to talk to you. Look at what he says, John 15. This is where we're going to sit for the next month together. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me, or some of your Bibles say, he lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away, is withering. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And guys, so here's the moment. They're walking through the Valley of Kidron and Jesus stops and he goes, Hey, hey, look at, look at these vineyards. I just want you to imagine you're standing with Jesus in this field and you look out and there's just vineyards everywhere. As far as you can see. And Jesus understood the power of a picture that a picture could cut through a heart that was overloaded by grief and fear in a way that principles never could. He's like, I'm gonna give you a, a picture. I'm gonna give you something that will help you understand how the Father has been at work in your life right now and how he's gonna be working in the good seasons and the bad when the check engine light is on or when the car is running smoothly. He goes, I wanna show you how the Father's working. And he gives them this picture of a vineyard because pictures are powerful. Back last summer, I took one of my sons on this rites of passage trip for four days. And there's this moment right before he and I got into the canyon, we we're gonna spend four days rafting through this canyon uh, together and I said, hey buddy, I want you to stop and I want you to take this scene into your heart because I believe over the next four days, we're gonna encounter some things that will serve as a metaphor for the rest of your life. And I want you to take this picture in because it'll help you understand the way God works. And I love this, Jesus stops him and he goes, hey, I, I want you to take this in. And I, like I said, this morning is just sort of an overview. I want you to understand the picture that Jesus lays before them and ultimately before us in John 15. It starts like this. Jesus says, hey, see all, all of these vineyards. He goes, in the midst of this, he goes, I am the true vine. He goes, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Look back at verse one of John 15. He goes, I am the true vine. The, the true vine, the correct vine, the appropriate vine. Look back at the vineyard with me for a minute. Jesus did not look out in a field that night, full moon, and say, hey guys, see that one little plant out in the field? That's me. He goes, no, see in the field, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vines. He goes, but I'm the true vine. In other words, there's lots of vines that you could be attached to in this life. Jesus goes, but I'm the correct one. I'm, I'm the only one in which your heart was designed to thrive and be fed by. And if you connect yourself to any other vine, it's not gonna go well for you. 
If you've ever seen the way a, a grape plant works, the vine is actually the trunk. It's sort of that like gnarly, um, like wooden trunk that grows out of the soil. You know, when we think of vines, we typically think of like decorative vines, like on walls and, you know, things that make 12 South look beautiful, you know, but like, like a grapevine, just like this big gnarly wooden vine growing out of the dirt. And Jesus said, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of vines out here in this field. And he goes, but I'm the true one. Guys, here's the reality. For every single one of you this morning, the question is not, are you connected to a vine? The question is, which vine are you connected to? Which vine are you connected to? And if you connect yourself to the vine of career or to sexual conquest or to escape or to pleasure or to entertainment or to comfort or to indulgences or to your children or to your relationships, if the vine of your life is anything other than the person of Jesus, at some point, you will be moving down the road of life and the check engine light will come on. Jesus goes, hey, a lot of vines out here. I'm the true vine. And the fruit of your life is directly connected to the vine that you allow yourself to be attached to. See, there's, there's a common lie that presents itself to all of us. Sometimes the lie comes from the mouth of the world. And sometimes the lie comes from the mouth of sort of legalistic, pharisaical religion, but either way, it's the same lie. And here's the lie, is that you can change the fruit of your life without dealing with the root to which you are attached. Hey, you can change the fruit. Hustle a little more, eat a little better, sleep a little more, life hack, life hack, life hack, you know. Those things have some value. I'm just saying, Jesus says there's one vine that your heart is designed to be connected to. And you will know a tree by its what? Help me out, church. You will know a tree by its fruit. And the fruit of your life is directly connected to the vine that you're attached to. And so Jesus stops him in this moment of grief and fear and he goes, hey, he goes, guys, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Secondly, he goes, and you guys are the branches. You're the branches. Look at verse five with me. He goes, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. Now, the, the vine is that big, thick, wooden part of the plant that grows out of the ground, but the, the branches are that little skinny, it almost looks like a twig that grows off of that gnarly wooden vine the branches are the small, thin little pieces that actually hold the fruit. It's crazy. The, bra the branches are vulnerable. They're dependent. They're communal. Like the branches don't just need the vine, they need each other. Uh, the, the branches, apart from the vine, can't produce anything. Jesus said, if you cut a branch off and throw it in a field, you never expect a harvest. And he goes, in the same way, if you're cut off and connected to your career or your sexual conquest or to fill in the blank, if, if the branch of your life is connected to any false vine, he goes, immediately you'll begin to sense it. He goes, I'm the vine, I'm the true vine. You're the branches. Third part of the picture, he goes, and our father's the gardener. Because our father's the gardener. And I love this image. I, I just imagine they're in the valley. The moon is out, shining bright. He's talking about the plants. He's showing them everything. And he goes, hey, see that guy walking through the vineyard? Who is that? And you know, one of the disciples through their tears and all the stuff they're feeling, Jesus, that's the gardener. 
Look back at verse one, Jesus goes, my father, my father's the gardener. The gardener understood what was happening in the whole vineyard. He also understood what was happening with each branch. He understood the threats and the opportunities, the weaknesses and vulnerabilities. The gardener's wise, he's attentive, he's close, he's near, he's, like, he's never hands off, he's, he's right in the midst of it. And I love this, Jesus goes, hey, whatever's happening in your life, here's the picture that you need to understand. Here's what God is doing. Because stay connected to me, the vine, you're the little branches, the father's the gardener, fourth part of the picture, and he is always at work in the vineyard. Father's always at work. There's some of you that believe that God has forgotten you, that he's left you behind. And Jesus goes, no, he sees you. He's attentive. Now, back in verse two, we'll talk about this over the next few weeks. Jesus goes, hey, the father is in the business of pruning, of disciplining, of cleaning, binding up and helping up, all these things. And I love the, the old quote that says, the father is never closer than when he's in the midst of doing the work of pruning. You know, it'd be really interesting if you were to just stop a random person on the street this week and say, what is the God of the universe doing in your life this week? Like right now, what's the God of the universe doing? And I bet you get all kinds of answers depending on how good their week has been, what their understanding of Jesus is, like you get all kinds of answers. You'd have some people that would be surprised by that question. Some people would be apathetic to it, frustrated by it. Some people would be joyfully indifferent. They'd go, I don't know what he's doing, but life is good. So I hope he keeps doing it, you know. There'd be some people that'd be confused, angry, fearful. How do you know the difference? And we'll, we'll deal with this in two weeks, but how do you know the difference between a season where God is disciplining you because you're headed in the wrong direction versus when he is pruning you because you're headed in the right direction and he wants you to experience more of his goodness. How do you know the difference? Because the truth is sometimes pruning and punishment feel the same at first. How do you know the difference when he's trying to, to guide you gently into a new season or where he's trying to keep you firmly planted where you're already at? See, the father will put his hands on the branches. And sometimes his hands on the branches feel like a tender hug. <laughs> sometimes his hands on the branches feel like a gentle correction. Sometimes his hands on the branches say like, hey, come and follow me. Like with my kids at the grocery store, I'm like, come on guys, let's go. Sometimes his hands on the branches feels like we're getting our butt spanked, you know? And it's like, how do you know the difference? And I'm convinced there's a lot of followers of Jesus as we find ourselves walking down into the Moonlit Valley, we have fundamentally no understanding of what the Father's trying to do. So when he begins to do it, we resist him, we run from him, we're confused by him. And Jesus says, I want you to get this picture in your heart. I'm the true vine, you are the branches. The Father is the gardener. He is always at work. He is always at work. And I just wanna name like, even that thought for some of you, you're like, that's scary. But I love, I love the last part of the picture because Jesus doesn't leave it there. It's not that he's always just always at work. It's that his work is abundantly wonderful. The Father's work, it is abundantly wonderful. It's good. It's for your good. It's for your blessing. And there's all these ways that the Father's abundant, 
wonderful work is illuminated by Jesus in this moment when they're filled with grief and fear. And this is not an exhaustive list, but, but I love this. Jesus says, what's the Father doing at any point in your life? This is true, I believe, of every disciple of Jesus in this room right now, I believe this is true, is that in every season of your life, no matter your age or your vocation, no matter whether it's been a good season or a hard season, I believe what Jesus is about to speak to is true of you. And I love this. He says, here's what the Father's up to. And I'll just give you a few of them. He says, the Father, his wonderful, abundant work, um, first and foremost, is about producing an abundant harvest of spiritual fruit in your life. Just imagine Jesus holds out this cluster of grapes. He's like, hey, does anybody want to grab some grapes? I'm like, no, we're full from the Last Supper. Oh, yeah, and we're still torn up about that information you just gave us. We don't want any grapes. But Jesus is like, hey, I want you to look at the fruit. He goes, this is what you've been made for. It's what you've been made for. Look at verse eight. He says, it is to my Father's glory that you would bear much fruit. We'll talk about this a lot next week. But I want you to understand real quickly, there's a difference between faith and fruit. And if you've zoned me out, I want you to tune me back in, okay? Faith. Faith determines our position in Christ. It is by grace that you've been saved through what? Through faith. Faith is what secures your position in Christ. So the fruit of the vineyard is not about your position in Christ. The fruit of the vineyard is about what happens though when you've been positioned with Christ and now you're walking into the things that Christ has purposed you for. There's a big difference. And if we get that wrong, like we become legalist. Like, how, how do I do more for God? No, that's not the purpose. Faith is about your position. Fruit is about the purposes for which God has made you to walk in this really short, finite life that you get. We'll talk about fruit a lot next week, but I would describe it this way. The fruit that Jesus is referring to is the work of Jesus in us and the work of Jesus through us for the sake of those around us as we stay connected to Jesus. And so it's the work of him producing his mind in our minds, his heart in our hearts, his motives in our motives, his character in who we are. But that never stays just with us internally. At some point, it bleeds out externally to bless the people around us. Jesus goes, one true vine, you're the branches. The father's the gardener. He's always at work. What's he in the business of doing? He's in the business of working in your life to bring about more fruit. You know, back in verse two, he says, those that are in me but have no fruit. In other words, they're saved, they're just not fruitful. He goes, those that have a little fruit, those that have some fruit, those that have much fruit, he gets to verse eight, Jesus goes, here's what he wants. No matter if you're 87 or 17 or 33, doesn't matter where you're at in your journey, the Father is working tenderly, gently, with wisdom and attentiveness in your life to bring about an abundance of fruit. That's amazing. I love this. He says, when this happens, this abundance of fruit, look back at verse eight. He goes, this gives my father glory. We spent a whole Sunday during Advent talking about glory, so I'm not gonna reheat that sermon right here. You can go back and listen to the podcast. But glory is something that we can both possess and express. Something that you can have and something that you can give or declare. And here in John 15, Jesus says, hey, when the Father's hand is on your life and you're, you've become abundantly fruitful, that expresses, your fruitfulness is an expression of glory. People look at you and go, man, God's amazing. 
He's wonderful. He's real. He loves me. He's near. So this is what the Father's up to, bringing about fruit so that your life will become a demonstration of glory towards the goodness of God. I'll just give you some more. Jesus keeps leaning in. And he goes, and all of this is designed to anchor you in love. Look at verse nine. I'm just, I'm just going through the text here. We could pull out so many things. Verse nine, Jesus goes, as the Father has what? Shouted out, as the Father has, oh, come on. Oh, man. I wonder if that depressed his heart to hear his love. I'm just kidding. Help me out. As the Father has, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Guys, we can read that verse in three seconds. It'll take you 50 trillion years to understand it. You have all of eternity to understand. Jesus goes, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. I tell my boys on almost a daily basis, you will not even come close to understanding how intense my love for you is until you become a dad one day. There's an intensity of my love towards you. You think you know it, you don't know it. Jesus goes, guys, you think you know my love. He goes, here's what the Father's doing. The Father is at work to bring about fruit. The Father is at work to bring about glory. The Father is at work to anchor you in the reality of his eternal love. In every season, good seasons, bad seasons, when the check engine light is on and when you're cruising. Fruit, glory, love. He keeps going. Jesus is like, you want another one? Joy. Look at verse 11. This is being spoken from the lips of a guy that knows he's walking towards his own death for the sake of the ones that are going to abandon him. And look at what he says to them. I love this. He goes, I've told you this. I've told you all these things so that my joy, not the world's joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus goes, I'm gonna give you an unshakable joy that even when you face the reality of life in ways that you never intended to face it. He goes, I'm gonna show up. There's gonna be a joy that's unshakable because it's rooted in my character, not in your circumstances. And he goes, and I wanna give that to you. That's what the Father's doing. He's bringing about fruit and glory and love and joy. And I'll just give you one more for the sake of time, verse 16. And he goes, and he's working towards your eternal legacy. Which maybe that sounds weird. Look at, look at verse 16. So powerful. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. Like you didn't beg to be on my kickball team. I picked you. I chose you. I chose you. Why? I chose you and I appointed you that you may sit still for the rest of your life, doing your best to hold on to your faith before you, no. I chose you. Why? And appointed you that you may go and bear what? Much fruit. Because this is what I've made you for. And it's not just fruit, it's fruit that will last. Guys, this is the longing of God's heart for every one of his kids, is that you'd stay connected to Jesus deeply, that through that connection, you'd become abundantly fruitful, that as you are fruitful, you give God eternal glory, that your feet are planted in his unshakable love, that your heart is anchored in unmovable joy and that the legacy of your life would be that woman, that dude, that child lived unapologetically for me forever and ever and ever and ever and ever to God be the glory. Great things he has done. Jesus goes, what's he doing in your life right now? He goes, right here in the valley, his hands are on you and this is what he's doing. Tomorrow when things are going great, his hands are on you, this is what he's doing. And you get to choose Will you allow yourself to be all the way connected in? 
And this is, why, this is why I love this season of prayer and fasting. There's no like secret sauce to it. It's just like what we do over the next month is we go, hey, Lord, would you help us get as connected to Jesus as possible so that the fullness of your spirit would flow through us without anything impeding it so that we bear fruit, you get glory, we're anchored in love, we're walking in joy, and that our lives would matter for the generations that come after us. And so something happens when you just say, Lord, I want my connection to be as tight and strong and clear with you as possible. So here's, here's what I want to encourage you. Two, two questions to wrestle with as we begin this month together. Question number one is what vine are you actually attached to? What vine are you attached to? Where do you look for source, uh, sources of energy, of comfort, of pleasure, of joy? What, what vine are you attached to? Secondly, Secondly, how do you increase the connection of your life to Jesus? Over the next 30 days, how do you increase the connection of your life, your branch, to his vine? What are you gonna do? How are you gonna take a step? What is God inviting you to? See, I think all of us, we come to the season differently. Some of you, check engine light is on, you know it. Some of you, it feels good. Either way, we're gonna slow down this month on purpose and go, how do we bring our hearts into the Father's house? Just go, hey, Father, would you just put your hands on us? Because I believe what he has for you is infinitely better than you can ask or imagine. And sometimes he gets to work in our lives and it does not look the way we thought it would look. And it doesn't feel the way we thought it would feel. But it's always, it's always gonna be for his glory and your joy and the good of people around you. So I wanna invite you to stand up. I wanna pray a blessing over us as we come into this month. And then we're gonna receive communion. It's on the tables around the room. If you're new to us, come take the bread and the cup, come back, circle your chairs up with the people that you came with. And we're gonna pray and we're gonna confess sin and we're gonna allow our lives to literally be brought into union with Jesus this morning around communion. If you wanna receive prayer, there'll be men and women that would love to do that. But I, I just invite you to open your hands up, extend them before the Lord together. And let me pray over us. Lord, I love you and I thank you that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and that you are at work in our, our lives with a profound attentiveness and gentleness and wisdom and love. And God, would you, would you bring every individual and every part of our church communally into such an increased connection with you over the next 30 days that the fruit that would come would not only bring you glory and us joy, but it would last forever and ever and ever and ever. Father, would you be at churches all across the city this month that are fasting with us? Would you be with us as we gather this week in Bridgestone? Would you be with us as we gather in the mornings for prayer? God, as we come to you, as our hearts come to you, God, remove anything that would keep us from producing a harvest of righteousness um, right here and now. Um, Lord, uh, thank you that you see all, you know all, you're in all. So this morning, as we receive the bread, as we receive the cup, as we confess our sins, and as we acknowledge our desire to walk with you as Lord, um, God, would you just show up in might and power. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Guys, you are so loved. You are so loved. If nobody's told you that this week, you are so loved. You matter so much to God. Um, you matter so much to us. I wanna encourage you, just let's put our hearts out before the Lord this month. No bystanders, no half in, no half out. Let's, 
Let's just come before the Lord and let's start right now in communion. It's around the room. Let's come grab it. Um, Come back to your seats. Let's pray, confess, share with each other. There'll be some men and women at the Respond Banner. We'd love to pray over you if you'd like that.